terms of the enforcement piece of it. Um, nothing's gone to trial. No one's gone to jail. Uh, of the four people cited, only two, um, a, literally a judge threw the other two out and said that was not legitimate. And only two uh, really met the criteria under the ordinance for those two individuals to actually get a court date. So how did that story get missed? Because even, <laughs> even though I, I was literally in the, the city hall, I was there for a completely different reason. I was there about actually a tobacco issue and we did have some interruptions and people with signs. And I'm like, I just need to say my two sentences and, you know, that's all I want to <laughs> do. Go to my next gig. Yeah. Yes. You know, but that, that entire piece, I, I heard bits and pieces, but it wasn't stated in a way that was as accessible as what you just shared. So I'm wondering yeah. why that was missed. The, the second part of this, this question really is, I feel like we may have missed it again when I started getting calls that we were making homeless people sleep in parking lots during COVID. So, what what's happening? And I, I don't even know. I don't want to be like, you know, rude. Like, why don't we have better PR? You know, because I, I don't know. So just Man, we, we, <laughs> this is true. This isn't even in the framework of PR so much as who's controlling the narrative and whose agenda is being addressed by particular kinds of narratives. So what I just explained to you about the ordinance is not half as exciting or interesting as 200 people showing up in City Hall waving signs. So the media interviewed me, played none of my explanation, but was very eager to do these loops and sound bites because it's more interesting, right? There's more fire to it parking lot situation. So one of our traditional shelter partners um, had a client who tested positive and they shut down their entire facility. That's what happened in a nutshell. No other provider was able to absorb the number of persons who got displaced by that action. So adult men who normally would have been able to stay overnight in this particular shelter were not able to do so. And no one else in the corridor of hope could absorb four or 500 adult men. So we took as many as we could at the courtyard a lot of folks are like, man, you're going to be too cramped and crowded up in there. And I don't want to be that close to people. Gotcha. And Camp Cashman, as we dubbed it, was a response to where do you put 500 adult men where they will be safe and have toilets? Plain and simple. The... Um, so like 24 hour response, right? One facility closes the next night, we're at Camp Cashman. Now people promised to bring me beds and mats, stuff never materialized. 
Um, and they won't ever tell you that though. And you know them, you've spoken to them. But there are people who harangued me on the phone about what we were doing wrong. And when I said, come help. What do you need? I need mats. I need cots. I need blankets. I need this, that, and the third. Come help. They promised help and they couldn't deliver. Because it's not easy to turn stuff around in 24 hours. Me and my crew, we turned it around in 24 hours. So we, um, and this was the thing that blew everybody's mind because they painted stripes so that people would go, you know, every other box keeps you six feet apart. Like we're trying to socially distance 400 men. So they, we had boxes painted. Um, Clark County came through with some porta potties and blankets. Um, the city covered the um, security and all of those kinds of things. We brought in uh, Turo uh, medical students to screen. Um, our fire department, anybody that popped positive, we were gonna transport them to the hospital, right? And this was a 24 hour response. Let me tell you how, it wasn't even 24 hours. This is how it really happened. I got a call at 12 noon. My boss called me at 12 noon. She said, meet me at Upper Cashman at 2 p.m. This was the day after the traditional shelter closed. I get a call at 12 noon on my supposed off day. <laughs> Met my boss at Upper Cashman at 2 p.m. And she said, by 6 p.m., you need to have this open. Say what now? By 6 p.m., you need to be ready to receive those individuals who have been displaced by the closure of that shelter. And I was ready. So, um, and I got defensive of my staff, right? Cause you, I mean, if I had kept the text messages, you got calls, but what I got were threats so bad that people told me I needed to have a marshal escort. Wow. I wasn't afraid. Like, I don't, I don't walk in fear like that because God so has me. And I was like, right, more bemused and amused than fearful. But I got called an evil B-I-T-C-H. I got, I got called everything but a child of God on my cell phone. People just texting from burners that no one would reveal themselves, wouldn't have a face-to-face -face conversation about it. And it really probably isn't something I would have done of my own volition. It was something we did in response to a knee-jerk reaction from a community partner. Let, let, we're back to this collective work and responsibility. So if you push, I can't shove back because now we're in a shoving match, right? They pushed. I had to stand there with open arms to receive whatever was coming my way. And so um, city and the county, people don't know how involved the county was in Camp Cashman, very involved, got together so we could respond immediately in a way that kept those individuals safe, allowed them to socially distance, and 
provided some rudimentary facilities, you know, bathrooms and a hand washing station, because where else were they going to go? And we kept that uh, Camp Cashman open until our community partner was able to work with the health district to get a plan for how they could reopen their facility. And even when they reopened, they had so scaled down again because of social distancing, they were at 50% capacity. And so we still had folks who had limited options about where they could go and be safe for the night. Yeah. That's one of those <laughs> scenarios that's, there's no good option. And so <laughs> you, you choose the, the best of the worst and, and, that, and that turnaround. So really, like you said, it's not 24 hours. It, it was a matter of a few hours. And, and one other thing I just wanna bring back into the conversation is when you see this in, in particularly national news, they show the Vegas Strip skyline and all of these multi-million dollar businesses that are quote unquote, turning a cold shoulder but they're not even actually a part of the city in that way. So making those, those distinctions, I think is important. Uh, I wanna get on a slight soapbox, I promise I'll be back. We <laughs> have so turned into a microwave society where we read headlines instead of content and then make judgments based on this snapshot instead of the full picture. And it's, it's really tearing us apart at the seams, whether we're talking politics, government, or families. And so my heart is to encourage people to build those deeper relationships, to take time to listen to the full story. Our podcast today is probably going to be about an hour. I want everyone <laughs> to listen to every single second, because if you miss a piece of it, then the rest of it doesn't quite jive. If we talk about that gumbo, if you miss the okra or, you know, the flour, whatever it may be, one of those four <laughs> ingredients, it's not gumbo. It's a hot mess, you know? So yeah. it's one of those things where we, we've got to get the full picture. So thank you again for, for sharing that with us. One other piece of bad PR. <laughs> we just keep stepping in it, right? After the, the, the parking lot fiasco, we then moved on to our city being opened as a, a testing site for herd immunity. And that went all over national news. And I got those phone calls once again. And then we bulldozed a, a homeless encampment. And I got calls again. So help us, just, just put that in context for us too. I promise I'm done. Well, you know, I, I have the greatest respect for my mayor. I don't need to explain nor defend any statements that she makes publicly. She can do that for herself. I will speak to this idea that a homeless encampment got bulldozed. Um, remember earlier in our conversation when I talked about us imposing our will on the most under-resourced communities and expecting them to simply accept that without question. That homeless encampment was that. And I take great exception with how so much of it has been characterized as this um, nirvana when I know for a fact there have been stabbings in 
that homeless encampment. I know for a fact in a different homeless encampment, not that one, but a different one, there was a murder that there, that this notion that it represents a meaningful, viable alternative to the degradation that people experience when they are homeless is a falsehood from the pit of hell. When I look at those shacks, I see the same kind of uh, solitary confinement shacks that were used at Abu Ghraib to torture people. I see shacks that were used on chain gangs in the South. I'm a child of the South, by the way. That's another story we could talk about where um, black men in particular were put into shacks just like that as punishment. So I didn't see anything positive there. I saw it as the most dehumanizing way to quote unquote house someone. And because of my own personal experiences, I should say my family's experiences, I looked at that as the kind of torture shacks that I have seen used almost universally when people want to put people into solitary confinement, no air, no toilet, no running water. And for us to put that up and call it housing is a sin and a shame. Furthermore, that encampment abutted a housing development of elderly, primarily African-American homeowners who are very poor. Like here we are pitting one group of poor against another group of poor. Nobody asked those homeowners what they thought about that homeless encampment abutting in their backyards and people taking laundry off their clothing line or whatever. No one went to that community of primarily African-American elderly people and had a consultation about, hey, here's something we need to do as the collective. How do we do this in a way that helps people who are unhoused and doesn't hurt you? Nobody had that conversation. The level of disrespect was, oh, well, there are only 10 homes over there. No, that's not true, first of all. There, there's a whole neighborhood over there. But so what if there were only 10 homes? Because Black people live in them, you don't have to have a conversation with them about how to meaningfully help people. So what they smell is human excrement because there are no toilets. What they see is sex acts for money because people are still living in poverty. What they see is trash and debris because everybody's not well-intentioned who's in that homeless encampment. And when they reach out to their elected officials and say, please do something about this, they get vilified. Now, the majority of those torture huts were on the North Las Vegas side. And yes, they did come in with uh, large machinery and tear down uh, 20 plus. Only two of them were actually on the city of Las Vegas side, but you would never know that from the media, right? It's like 
Las Vegas did blah, blah, blah. No, Las Vegas put up a gate working with uh, Union Pacific Railroad so that folks couldn't get uh, down there. There's actually a natural well that feeds into Lake Mead. So despite what people have heard, there is contamination coming from homeless encampments, not just that one, but others, that um, actually flows into Lake Mead. So to think that this nirvana of free housing and free food and uh, what, what um, was it Mr. Uh, Harwood at our last um, Jameson's Fellows convening said, you know, don't create these utopias because they're not viable, they're not sustainable. And people were portraying this encampment as this nirvana of free food, free housing, free everything. But it wasn't that for everyone. And we can create solutions that don't contaminate the water, that don't further just disenfranchise poor black people, that don't um, create places for predators to sell drugs and do the sex trade. We can do those things and still provide housing. In fact, I'm a big fan of tiny homes, but those weren't tiny homes. Those were torture shacks. And I encourage people to be students of history and go look at what solitary confinement looked like in the South. Go look at what they were doing recently in Abu Ghraib when they were putting those prisoners in that kind of a shack. And tell me, is that a solution to homelessness? It's not a solution to homelessness. It's also not a solution to homelessness to play zero sum games that some people win and some people lose and some voices are heard and some voices are not heard. And one group of poor people are the deserving poor and another group of poor people are the undeserving poor. That's not how we get to solutions. You know, when I heard about it, I was on a, a board call with a particular organization and one of the members is very passionate about these types of issues. And when that individual presented it, my initial reaction was, this is unbelievable. How did this happen? And then, you know, I took a breath and I took a step back and said, there's got to be more. And the reason that I said, there's got to be more it's because of my involvement with the Mayor's Faith Initiative and because of my, my connection to you and others in our city and because I've had the chance to see our mayor's heart and, and things of that, that nature. So getting to know people allowed me to say, there's gotta be something else that I'm missing. And that's kind of what spurred on, on this conversation today and, and the previous one uh, with Emily Paulson, because I, I wanna get these perspectives because we all see things through our history, through our lens, yeah. through our lane. And so when, when you see the, the torture, someone else may see something different and have seen something different, but until they hear your story and know that history, then it doesn't make sense. So thank you for giving us that broader perspective um, in regards to that as well. For me, when I'm, I'm listening to this though, I still have the burning question of why. And I know that that's a very simple question, but it, growing up, that was my favorite one. Well, well, mom, why? Dad, why? Or why not? You know, I'm trying to get my way. Well, why not? Can't I have that? <laughs> and, and what I've learned is 
you have to be able to back up and see the bigger picture to understand the why. Why is a good question, but there are so many other pieces connected to it that are so beyond my, my scope. I'm an expert in spirituality. That's my lane. Like, that's what I do. You know, compassion and empathy and love. I'm not an expert in how cities run. I'm not an expert in the various aspects of, you know, our pipes are connected to Lake Mead. And, you know, I don't, I don't know any of that. All I know is I see hurting people and I want to help. And what I'm, I'm trying to do now is figure out how to, to bring that heart piece to that intellectual piece, to the helping hands piece, and get them all working and flowing in the same direction. But as I do that, the biggest question, again, is simply why. Why do we not have the beds for single women who aren't victims of domestic violence? Why is it we don't have beds for pet owners? You know, why, 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 why? And, you know, I, I don't want to come off as being aggressive or, or anything like that, but I kind of am aggressive about this because it's, it's something that's yeah. affecting people in a real way. As I sit in my heat at home today, it's a little chilly. I'm comfortable. If I get too warm, I cut the heat down, turn on a fan. If I have to use the restroom, I take a few steps and I have a wonderful bathroom I can use. If I'm hungry, I go to my fridge. If I don't like what's in there, I go to the store and get something different. I am doing really well and others are not. And I also, but I, again, take that back to myself, which is I also hung up Christmas lights and I decorated a beautiful Christmas tree and you know, put up all these decorations and I bought some new ones this year. Why didn't I give that money to the homeless shelter? Why didn't I give that money to a food bank? Why didn't I take that initiative and, and try to make a difference? And I'll tell you my why, it's overwhelming. My drop in the bucket doesn't seem like it's going to make any substantial change, especially when I just heard about, well, someone donated all of these wonderful luxury one bedroom apartments that were bulldozed without mercy. You know, so it, it's these competing narratives, as you mentioned, that almost paralyze people in their pursuit to bring a solution. So what would you say is the root like if we want to get down to, as my grandma would say, the nitty gritty of things, what, what is that for us? And what would you recommend as our next steps? And perhaps they're already happening and we just don't see them. But what would you say is, is that root piece that we need to address? And then how do we address it? Yes. So first, let me say that we should still embrace joy even when there is suffering in the world. So I'm glad you put up Christmas lights and celebrated. We don't have to trade our joy because suffering exists. In fact, it's pretty important that we keep our joy because it keeps us going. When things feel overwhelming, uh, if we lack joy, we're doomed, we're doomed. So stay joyful. If we are getting to the root, the root, as my grandmother would say, the root of the matter, <laughs> we need to move upstream and look at things like mental health and substance use. We need to move upstream and talk about living wages we need to move upstream and talk about 
access to primary health care. The reasons that people are homeless are as varied as the people who are homeless. But you can often trace it back to a number of things. For example, children who age out of the foster care system are more likely to end up homeless than children who do not come out of the foster care system. Maybe the foster care system's broken. People who have experienced incarceration are very likely to end up homeless. Maybe the criminal justice system is broken. Individuals experiencing domestic violence and both men and women are victims of domestic violence often end up homeless. Maybe we need to do something about violence in our families. Now, I say this not to make it more overwhelming because people want the silver bullet. Let me just build a shack on land. Even if I'm trespassing, it's better than them sleeping on the ground. But is it? Would you live there? Are the solutions we are solutions that we ourselves would need in order to thrive, not merely survive, but to thrive? And if the answer to that is no, then let's work on the solutions that would work for us if we needed that kind of help. So stop passing out bologna sandwiches on the street because as a very erudite homeless man told me once, I'm not sandwichless, I'm homeless. And he was like, bing, yeah. right? Yeah. Our intentions are good but our results are fleeting. We're doing these transactions. It made me feel better to feed. People would be surprised to know that I used to be a feeder and I don't anymore, right? It made me feel better, but it did nothing to transform the condition of that other human being on the other side of that transaction. And I go home, as you say, we're comfortable. It's cool. I cut the heat up, get a fuzzy blanket, complain about what's, there's nothing to watch on TV, right? I think what we do both individually and collectively is move upstream, solve the problem at its source. If the source is people can't afford rent, maybe the conversation we ought to be having is about living wages. How do we end poverty? They're empty apartments, but if I can't afford to pay that rent, it doesn't matter that there's an apartment. It's neither available nor accessible to me because I can't afford to pay the rent. So maybe we should be talking about, it takes about 18.50 an hour to afford a two bedroom apartment. Do the majority of the jobs in a hospitality driven economy pay $18.50 an hour? Maybe that's the conversation we should be having. Don't give up our joy, right? Celebrate, love, encourage each other. 
and press harder on the transformative questions rather than the transactional questions. So if it's cold and you're giving out blankets this holiday season, all right. Just know that you kicked the can down the road. You haven't changed anything for anyone. They didn't freeze on the street tonight, but they're still on the street tonight. And in our collectives, if we could say, I actually posed this, by the way, many years ago to the Mayor's Faith Initiative. If there are 200 churches that were members at that time, there were about 200 um, places of worship that were part of the Mayor's Faith Initiative. And I said, everyone just adopt one family this year, one household. That's 200 households off the street. And do it again next year. It's another 200 households off the street and do it again for a third year. But if you're a big church, maybe you don't adopt one family, you adopt 10 because you're a big church. Then adopt 10 more. That's what we do. We, we harness our collective abilities to care for each other and do the thing for those people that we would need done for ourselves. Don't give them solutions that you would find unacceptable. And I promise you, very few of the people who are advocating for those shacks live in a shack. They live as comfortably as you and I do. We should be advocating for those kinds of solutions for people experiencing homelessness. That we give them what we ask for ourselves. And if we can harness our collective resources, then it's not a heavy lift, right? Many hands make the light, make the work light. If we look for those longer term transformative solutions that feel slower, they're not big, they're not flashy, they happen one family at a time, but that's one less family living on the street. And if we did that consistently, intentionally, purposefully, we'd be moving more and more families out of homelessness. These sort of Band-Aid fixes, they leave the families who are homeless now, they leave them homeless as more families enter into homelessness. So let's move upstream. Let's look at the criminal justice and the child welfare system. Let's look at living wages, move upstream, tackle those big, hairy, sometimes scary problems at the same time, one at a time. We help that one homeless person get a job, that one homeless person become housed, that homeless person get connected to services. Because tomorrow, guess what? They're hired, housed, and healthy. And then I can go partner up with the next person if I just give them a sandwich tonight, guess what? They're still homeless tomorrow. Well, Kathy, I think we can leave it there. Well, thank you for this conversation. Uh, I think there's an opportunity to have many, many more. Um, and I appreciate you providing space to have this kind of honest discourse. This is the only way we ever really will get to real compassion is if we get to understanding first. So thank you for giving me time. Through her kindness, it really started kind of rewriting my self narrative. 
and presented the op- the possibility that maybe, that just maybe, I'm not somebody's worst mistake. And maybe, just maybe, I'm not the worst thing that ever happened to somebody or the worst thing that happened to me.